Hi guys, welcome to the Revive Stronger podcast. It's me as always, Steve Hall, and today I have Mike Isretel back on the show uh, quite quickly, I think, uh, for what has been our previous kind of Q&As. We've had much time strung between them, but I know for a lot of people, these are some of the maybe only episodes they tune into, or at least their favorites. So I'm very happy to have Mike back on here um, first thing in the morning. So he's kind of, you have to give Mike the benefit of the doubt if he's not on not on point, but I know he will be anyway. So uh, how is everything on your end, Mike? I know last time we kind of went straight into questions, but um, I know you're prepping and from seeing mm-hmm. some of your photos looking pretty freaky, um, especially kind of glutes from the rear and everything coming through. So it's yeah. really exciting actually to see that all coming together. It is very exciting. I'm in my sort of last final phase. Like right now as we're recording this, it's mid to late October and I am hopefully going to be in something like competitive shape in early December. And depending on how COVID and travel and all this other stuff works out, I should be competing then. Um, and also depending on if I get lean or not, but <clears throat> I think that that question is going to be answered in the affirmative. So um, I, uh, I'm on my way down to pretty lean of like a week ago, I did a test peak sort of situation. So I guess the, the real story is I um, carry a lot of body water when I prep, way more than most people thought, way more than I ever thought. And that has been sort of my Achilles heel for a very long time. And uh, Jared and I actually have very easy, cheap access to a DEXA here in Las Vegas. And I was like, man, like Jared, Jared kept, kept going. He's like, you're fucking lean. I know you're lean. Like you got ab veins like during certain times of the day. Like, that just doesn't happen if you're like 11% body fat. It doesn't happen. So he took guesses at what body fat was. And we went to go get DEXAs together. And this was about two weeks ago. And I was at 6.9%. And he's like, see, and like the scan has like the fat is labeled in red. And shoot, the lady looked at the scan and she's like, ah, you don't really have any. <laughs> That. And I was like, holy shit. Okay. So that was what would be like nine weeks out, 10 weeks out of shows. And I was like, God damn. And Jared's like, it's kind of ahead of schedule. And I'm like, okay. And I was feeling pretty fatigued. So I took a little bit, uh, like a week, basically half a week of higher volume eating, still all the cardio, still all the training, uh, zero cheat foods, uh, just a bit more clean food. Uh, kind of reset a little bit and I felt a lot better after that. And then we were like, fuck it, like might as well do a mock peak to see how I actually look if this body water comes off. So we did one of those, uh, with Broderick's Insight, um, and it worked pretty well. And those were the pictures that, that we'll post on Instagram with like the glute detail and all this other stuff, stuff like, you know, weird, weird veins and stuff like nobody had ever seen on me, including myself. Uh, so I was like, oh, wow, holy shit. So the test peak worked. So awesome. now... I'm in the, you know, the very early stages of like basically six weeks of um, the hardest pushing of the entire prep, uh, so to speak. It is just sitting in a deficit that's pretty large and just living. <clears throat> People say time to push. I don't know what I'm pushing. There's not a rock here for me to push. I just wake up and have training and then eat. And then it's just, I guess, permanent hunger and food cravings and relatively low energy uh, is just the standard. So I just have to live through that for the next, what is now five and a half weeks ish. And, uh, that's like, uh, that's it. And I think that just based on the numbers, I, I kept very, very detailed track in the last six months of my calorie intake. You have to on special sports supplements because sometimes 
Your appearance doesn't change uh, because of body water like you think it should. And definitely your body weight is just straight up garbage variable at that yeah. point. Um, so I've done that really well. And during times of supplement stability, I've uh, uh, done various calories and noticed how much weight I'm losing because when the supplements are stable for like more than a month, then, then the body weight actually does become reflective. So I did that and I have a really, really good stuff nailed down about what my deficit should be to get XYZ amount of tissue loss. And now right. that's engaged. So to just to clue people in on that, because I'm sure people are curious, my maintenance is at least 3,500 calories. Uh, and that's because I train with weights a lot, 10 times a week. I walk 12,000 steps a day. And I train jujitsu and all the stuff and I weigh like, you know, 225 pounds in the middle of the day. So pretty standard. So 3,500 to 4,000 somewhere is my maintenance. Um, maybe depressed on a diet, it's 3,500. And I'm currently running 2,600 calories daily. And I feel every bit of it, you know, like how a 500 deficit feels. It's not that it's more. <laughs> uh, so 2,600 calories is what I'm currently running, which is, you know, sort of at least a pound per week of uh, tissue, uh, probably more like a pound and a half, if not more. And I'm currently just running that. And that will be what I run pretty much unchanged because it's at the very limit of what I'm able to sleep with. Like as soon as you can't sleep reliably, you just need more time with your diet and a greater deficit is untenable, right? Like it, it's, it's kind of like training volume where like as soon as you can't recover session to session, more volume isn't the answer. I think a lot of people think with a deficit, I just have to grind harder. Like if it was all willpower and grinding, willpower I have. I could just not eat. I can just straight up not eat or, or just eat protein. I've done that before for weeks on end. And, and if all that worked, it would work. But it doesn't because your training energy goes to shit uh, and all this other crazy stuff happens with body water. Uh, so it just it's not the best idea. But I have plenty of time. And I think that at that magnitude of deficit, for a total of six weeks towards the last end of the diet. Now, this is like starting somewhere in the high 6% body fat range if the DEX is to be believed on average. Um, and I have glutes rations, so like in pictures. So like, it's funny because I've uh, some, I've never made, made uh, DEXA thing public until now, I guess. I haven't made an Instagram post about it because it would be because when I had the DEXA, I was still covered in body water and it would have been funny. I'd probably still do this. I'll post the DEXA results and be like, post a picture around from that time. They'll be like, man, no way, it's wrong. And I'll post a picture in the next post of me who's trying to glutes and be like, this is four days later. What do you guys think about that? And they're like, oh, you know, these people are always incredulous and people mm -hmm. like to talk shit. So it's, uh, you know, yeah, like, yeah. When you have lutrations from the rear and you have your abs are covered in veins and shoulders and traps are covered in veins, you probably are 6.9%. You know what I mean? It's not really like, that's not really controversial. So uh, from there, six weeks at a very large deficit, gee whiz, Steve, I call me crazy, but that's got to have to result in something like four-ish, three-ish percent body fat. And uh, muscle loss is, is like literally not a concern at all with special supplements. Um, and then voila, you know, like I have to be in, in some kind of shape. And then hopefully if the show thing lines up, it'll line up and I'll step on stage and uh, not thoroughly embarrass myself. So there it is. That's, it's really cool actually to get kind of the, I, I think for myself and other people, they're following along, but to actually hear you talk through kind of a bit more detail of what's going on your end, it's nice to hear it. And actually I was just thinking the DEXA scan saying six, like almost like under 7%. And that DEXA scans tend to overestimate, if anything, from what I've seen. So, oh no, oh really? Is that uh, for like for competitors and stuff? I thought think? so, yeah, because I know like Alberto did one or something when he was like 
shredded to the bone and it mm-hmm. was saying i don't know closer to 10 percent or something when it was like you're looking <laughs> at him and you're like oh, it looks closer to five so for sure i thought they overestimated it, it if anything yeah so i mean our dexa scene based on so jared had guessed his own body fat prior and i'll leave that to him to disclose but he was right on the money for both of us uh so he definitely now we had two friends that were much more much less muscular do the same dexas a week later and theirs look to be an overestimate like one of them has like mini veins riddling his entire body and it had him at like uh eight percent and it was kind of like man you know eight percent's a lean dude with some veins and striations but he was like at a point where he's pulling his shirt off and we were like what the fuck is going on with your body something's wrong with you right so so maybe but you know the dexa i'll tell you this it is all pointless because what the dexa really does very well is it gives you your body fat in increments of roughly five percent right so if you score between five and ten and i'll say in the middle of the five and ten range was exactly where i was i guess on the lower end of that 6.9 so let's call it seven if you score at seven percent you're not 11 you're not and during various phases of my body water shit i was looking like 11 plus i was looking towards the end of the evening i was weighing 230 tons of salt accumulation tons of water accumulation under the skin i was in some angles looking like I was in the 20% range. Like I had full love handles and everything. But then again, I had like a snaking giant vein through the middle of my abs, which you just don't, like there's like discordance there. Where like Jared as the kind of, the guy that sort of my coach that looks at me and goes, I wonder, he's like, there's nothing either. I'm like, I was, there's one point the day before we got the back server, I was like almost straight up ready. I wasn't really ready to quit, but I was like, what the fuck am I doing bodybuilding? This is ridiculous. I look like I have a, a beer gut and like fucking love handles. And I was like still covered with hair at the time. I hadn't shaved. And I was just like, what the fuck? And Jared's like, shut the fuck up, man. You're, you're lean. I'm telling you, lean. It's tough to like when you don't look lean. Yeah, uh, and imagine. you're like, oh, you could tell me I'm lean all the time, but yeah, maybe I'm not. Uh, and uh, so at the end of the day, the DEXA does do that thing where it gets you in that general range. So if you DEXA at 12%, look, look, you're not like in shooting distance of a show yet. Yeah, it, it, it absolutely depends on how you look. Because remember, bodybuilding is all—it's purely visual. So yeah. if you have ab veins and glute striations, the dexa dexes you have twenty. It doesn't fucking matter because the judge is going to look at your dexa when you stop on stage. But it just as a general thing, your dexa will probably line up somewhere in the mid range of a five percent. So if you dexa three percent, nobody can tell you you're eight weeks out of the show. Like uh, it's probably body water because if you're dexing at three percent, at most you maybe you're seven or eight at most and then yeah you're like that's like what i don't know a month or two out of a show we, how long can you die for right so i think that for that it's really good um and, and honestly for most competitors and a lot of folks probably have follow-up question which i was addressed should i get a dexa the answer is probably not for most people um, um, unless you tend to carry a lot of body water which you might so it's mm-hmm. kind of cool to get once but like i sound like i'm going to be getting dexas all the time like again i'm like once a year maybe twice a year but some people are like well should i get a dexa every month because it's safe and it's cheap it's not going to tell you every month anything you need to know that your appearance won't tell. Uh, so at the end of the day, especially in competitive bodybuilding, most of the folks tuned into your show have at least some affiliation with like getting that lean. When you're that lean, you'll know you're that lean because you'll look that lean. Like instead of getting a DEXA, I could have just taken that picture that I took in their little magic mirror in Las Vegas, the one that like got like 10,000 likes or whatever on Instagram with Jared taking it over the top of me where I'm just like covered in veins and separations. Like I could have just substituted that for like, okay, I'm close. <laughs> you know, like it doesn't matter what the Dexa is. When you look like that, it's like, oh. And then the um, rear double by with the glute detail, you know, someone, someone, it's funny afterwards, um, 
recently. Instagram, social media is a fun place. I had a picture, I had a video recently of me like doing rows shirtless. And it's like the lighting is that, you know, pure washout lighting where it's like mm. a yellow tint light and it washes everything out. And I have clear striations in my middle traps if you pay attention. But if you kind of zoom out and just look at it, you're like, this is like a guy who's like at 15% fat, right? And this guy's like, hey man, so like videos or pictures are more accurate for body fat. Uh, and I'm like, I don't know. It sort of depends. Uh, I think pictures are like the lighting is usually the picture you pick is better. So it's, it's like that. So he's like, so videos then, right? So you really are like not that lean. And I was like, well, I don't know. Like depends on how lean you think I am. And he's like, I think I walk around leaner than you. And I'm like laughing to myself. Like, yeah, motherfucker, you walk around at 6%. Got it. <laughs> like, no, you fucking don't. And, and, and I click the guy's profiling. No, he fucking doesn't. Okay. But it's just one of those things where, you know, one of those videos and people are like, you know, you can yourself be like, hey, 6.9 decks is a fucking lie. It's probably like the highest end, maybe 10%. But then it's really great to have picture evidence. Even if you take pictures just for yourself of like that picture of me in that gym with like detail in the glutes, like it doesn't matter what percent I am. I'm just not that far off. Yeah. Like, you know what I mean? And, and my, my glutes aren't like the first thing to come in or something. And the rest of me like looking pretty fucking decent. So it's kind of like, okay. I can't actually, because obviously everyone, there's people listening who have been through a contest prep and obviously I have, and you get into your head so much during a contest prep. And I think as like naturals, we hold on to some body water, but nowhere kind of to the degree that it sounds like you are uh, certainly. So to be in a position where you're like, oh, I need to increase food to see what I really look like. A lot of people will be like, no, but I'm holding on to it's clear like they feel like it's fat they won't increase food so they just constantly they never really see the their true self in a in a sense and maybe just make describe it worse. my first like six years of bodybuilding <laughs> yeah. when I you know those like terrible pictures of me at my first show right like the absolutely atrocious ones I was probably carrying fifteen to twenty pounds of excess body that's crazy yeah and so I was actually pretty lean. yeah yeah oh sure and you know people like um, people comment later and like oh like he just doesn't know how to control his appetite like. That emotionally at times, at my rough times, it brings me to the point of nearly wanting to beat people up. Like if someone says that to me to my face, I'll be like, I have 10 times more willpower than you. You're a child. Uh, I've run harder diets than you for longer. You have no idea what you're saying. You're just saying things. And it's because it's painful because of how much I've starved. Yeah. And then I just accumulate more and more body water. And I'm like, huh. So what I should have done is just people are like, you know, they're, they're going to ask. This is a good preview here. Once I, you know, post my more final week pictures or how I eventually look, there's going to be, the, you know, hopefully if this all works out, I don't get injured today. But even still, it's already worked out because like some of the pictures I posted are ridiculous. And a lot of people have been asking, like, what, what changed? Uh, I should have met Broderick Chavez years ago, first of all. should have met Jared Feather years ago. And I should have attempted to control sodium and fluid intake years ago. And it didn't. Um, and, and really, it's like doing the sports supplement thing without proper guidance and reading natty articles. Um, yeah. I remember you reading articles on T-Nation and shit like water and sodium are your friend. And I'm like, okay, <laughs> it's just like, don't restrict sodium. Bullshit. As a, as a guy using sports supplements, if you don't restrict sodium, you may be one of the 50% of the people who will be a giant water. Bomb. And as soon as you start to control sodium, your body just like turns into whatever it is you thought it was. And you're like, huh, okay. It is, you know, natural stuff like uh, there's, there's quite a few folks on the natural end that have, quite comfortable speaking for enhanced prep. And that's another huge mistake. I, I know some natty coaches that'll say like, you, know, you don't need to peak. Like nobody needs to peak. You just show up in shape. Like, You're a fucking idiot. 
Like you have no idea how many how many drug guys have you peaked? I'm like, well, I haven't, but it's all it's all the same. Oh, sweet. So you're just pretending. And when your own body is living proof of the opposite, it, it's painful. You know, to some extent. Mm. It's all emotional bullshit. I just have to keep dieting and keep getting in better shape and it'll be, I'll be good. Yeah. I think it's, it's like on the general level, a lot of the enhanced to natural stuff is very comparable to one another. But when you're trying to get a physique peaked, which is a ultra specific and individualized process for a lot of people anyway. Yeah. I mean, it's going to make a, it's got to make a difference because I've equally read kind of guys who are coaching enhanced people and i'm looking at the kind of peaking protocol i'm like this doesn't seem right to me but equally right. it obviously could it very well is for someone who is kind of on the enhanced side it makes a lot of sense that there's just the extremes are way more extreme when you are playing with extreme things for sure and, and, and a lot of times when you have industry near universals at the very top they're probably not by accident uh, so like almost all the guys at the top have pretty meticulous peaking protocols and some of them are more careful than others, but everyone controls all the main variables and they wouldn't do that if like for natural guys, a lot of times it's just like have more sodium, keep your fluid coming in, eat a bit more carbohydrates, step on stage. Like that's as easy as that. Jared has turned like, I don't know, like 30, 40 people pro naturally now. And he just, that's what he does. Um, and when you see that almost everyone at the top of the enhanced field, and even most of everyone not at the top does some sort of peaking, it's probably not by accident. It's like, there's a, and this is a little bit on, uh, on topic, but there's, a some studies that are very interestingly funny designed to try to conclude. They're not, these studies are not trying to conclude this, but people have used them to conclude this, that uh, growth hormone has no muscle building potential. Um, and, uh, it's, it's funny because, you know, we have an interview that's on YouTube with Matt Jansen, who's one of the best prep coaches in the world. I was like, what is the big difference between when guys want to take the shit to the next level? He's like, as much growth hormone as you can afford. And I'm like, okay, because people don't even say that about steroids. <laughs> like, you know, like as much testosterone as you can afford will just kill you or just make you like a giant water balloon. But I was like, really? He's like, yeah, like, I've had guys who've gone into that higher end of growth hormone, 12 to 16 IUs, which by the way, just a replacement dose is like one to two IUs, just to put wow. that in perspective. And he's like, I've had a guy gain uh, 20 pounds of muscle in one year just from that one chain. And it's like, people will say like, they'll get PubMed article, um, actual AIDS patients who don't resistance train, and they'll see all the gains are just body water. It's not actual muscle. Uh, and they'll say growth hormone doesn't build muscle. And, and you're like, right now. So, so in the presence of insulin and androgens and resistance training, you're still comfortable making that statement. They're like, I'm just saying it. There was guys on it. This is like really one last funny story. Viewers will appreciate this. Um, there's like a forum on Facebook. I'll leave it nameless where there's lots of like just complete idiot bros who just abuse gear. And then actually a, a pretty large handful of pro bodybuilders, actual bros. And these guys got on this thread where they were like, is growth hormone worth it? And, and they're like, yeah, man, it just like carries body water for me. And it's a fat, like a really expensive fat burner. I just like take more clen and do more orals. And they asked, uh, I, I mean, it's just, I think it's, I don't, I don't want to speak. It's not, I'm going to, I don't know if it's public form and I'm in it. I don't know if it's public, but uh, very top pro guy who's currently winning shows. They're like, Hey, like, right. This is true. Right. And he's like, no. And they're like, they have tons of respect for the guy. Right. Cause he's like, I mean, he's the IFP pro. These guys are like just guys who live in New Jersey who like lift really hard and take lots of drugs. And they're like, you don't, 
you like growth? He's like, growth is indispensable. It is not a cheap fat burner. It'll revolutionize your training. And if you don't think so, you're either not taking enough of it, not for long enough, or your growth is fake, which happens. And and they're like, it's just like this crickets atmosphere where they're like, huh. And like, you don't take like orals and stuff during mass phases uh, to get bigger. And he's like, no, I only take them during cutting phases. And they were like, it was always like their world was like shocked. They were like, oh, huh. Cause you know, you, you, they, they had like 18 comments of thread that was like, yeah, everyone was in agreement. All the bros are like, yeah, growth's fucking waste. It's stupid. And then the pro comes in and he's like, you guys are all completely wrong. This is a guy who has 30 pounds more muscle than everyone with like, you know, 0% body fat or whatever. And they're just like, huh. So it, it's, it's easy, especially in the enhanced realm to make statements that are just uh, very short-sighted mm-hmm. and you can even cite literature to support them. But because the literature doesn't exist in the right kind of conditions, ecological validity is really shitty. Then it's like, there, there's at least, I'll put it this way. There's at least one study that shows deadlifting at high volumes is no more fatiguing to the nervous system than squatting or benching. Yeah. Now people have asked me what I thought about that study. I think it's, I think it's comedy. It's actual comedy because you can feel free to try that. If you'd like, I, I tried it. I've tried high frequency deadlifting and so have lots of other people. It, it's a road littered with bodies. And is just deadlifting is just more fatiguing than squatting and benching, and it's not something I'm interested in debating. If, if someone's interested in debating that, I'm interested in just I'm doing a program for four weeks, and then they're going to be like, ah, yeah, take that back. As a matter of fact, I'm not even interested in doing that because I'm going to talk them out of it a bit. Don't deadlift four times a week. Don't do that. You may not recover from that ever. Like something may happen to you where you pull your shit in fifty different ways. So it's just funny. There's this there's this chasm there sometimes, and I used to have to bridge that chasm by myself not knowing anything now that I have Broderick um, and Jared, it's much more Hey, Pascal here. I just wanted to take the moment to talk about our membership site. Inside, you'll find a thriving forum, an extensive exercise library, courses, presentations, and research reviews. All I need you to do is hit the link in the description below and sign up. See you there. I'm I'm very glad because I um, expect other people have had similar experiences, but with other things, like, I don't know, they struggle dieting and they eat clean or whatever. It's like, oh, calories. Dude, um, the if it fits your macro stuff, when yeah. people remember like the whole Snickers bar thing and all due respect to Sohi, I think that proved a really good point. The thermodynamics is king, that calories and macros are king. You can't have a Snickers bar all, all every day through prep. Uh, but I think a lot of people ran with that further than so he was willing to run with it. And they're like, see, like this food quality bullshit doesn't matter. Yeah. And then you got people trying to do a diet and they're like, oh, I'm going to work in ice cream. And then that's like 12 p.m. and they can't fall asleep or 12 a.m. And they're like, <laughs> I should have never had that ice cream. I'm like 50 times hungrier. And then they go slowly work their way back to what the bros are doing, which is eating like tuna and white rice and fucking shitload of vegetables. And they're like, oh. Oh, that's why they do it. It's not some magical fat burning trick. It just makes you not nearly as hungry and more full. So it's one of those things where on paper at a first analysis, some things look really cool. People just run with them. And then when they actually experience them, they're like, oh, like, I'm not saying the bros are right about everything. Far from it. I'm saying if a lot of the people at the top have been doing the same thing for decades, it requires a little bit of reverence. Uh, just, just, just a consideration. It's like some people will say every now and again, one pro bodybuilder come out and be like, I don't like insulin. I think insulin is stupid. I don't think insulin puts on a lot of muscle and I think it's a waste of time. Why does everybody use it? I mean, insulin is not even fun to use. First of all, it doesn't make you feel any specific way. Like some anabolics are like, it makes you feel like, oh yeah, like fuck it, get strong. Insulin makes you feel like bloated and it makes you feel really hungry shortly thereafter. And it gets really inconvenient because you can't even eat your favorite foods. You have to eat exactly what you planned really quick and, and, and it's dangerous. 
people use that for a reason. And maybe it's misguided or maybe it's wrong, but gee, it, it's not something you just write off. It's just strange when people are like, ah, that's bullshit. It's like, eh, is it? Yeah, I think it's it's the way it comes back to the whole evidence-based practice is meant to be a combination of kind of the anecdote with the science and something I have always respected you for, Mike, and actually it made me do this more was kind of not jumping at one study. It's kind of like, yeah, when there's a lot of studies or like a lot of people doing something a similar way, like then we can start start drawing some conclusions maybe before that note. 100%. Cool. Thank you for the update. I think people will appreciate that and uh, it will be interesting for them. So uh, I'm excited to see, yeah, kind of few, well, less than two months down the line before Christmas. Yeah, <laughs> An before early Christmas. Christmas present <laughs> for everyone. Sure. Something like that. <laughs> cool. So yeah, let's dig into the questions. Um, the first one is from Brett Freeman and he has asked, and I think you may have covered this before, but I just thought I'd ask to see if there's any uh, kind of any different considerations and uh, maybe people haven't heard it so he asked uh, what are mike's thoughts on consistently working with lower rers with isolation movements such as biceps calves for example uh, is it really much more fatiguing than consistently working with less than two rer on these exercises smaller muscle groups and isolation exercises do not have as much systemic fatigue spillover so you can work with lower RIRs than you typically would with compounds without paying as much of a systemic fatigue price. That is a true statement. That is only part of the story. There are at least two other things we have to consider. One, what is the local fatigue that is incurred to that muscle and its motor nerve and its patterning in the brain, which is all local to that muscle? Probably pretty high. So question there is, is that fatigue worth it? That dovetails exactly into question number two, is why? Uh, I'll play the devil's advocate really quick. Angel's advocate, I don't even know if there's such a thing. Steel manning the argument is like, yeah, like it's effective to train with close to failure. It's less unequivocal, like it's, or it's, uh, right, it's more unequivocal, uh, less equivocal, that is. It's, it's like you, when you're close to failure, you really know, and it's not guessing that there's a very low chance you're not training hard enough. Right? And if the systemic fatigue spillover is not that great, then you might as well risk it. So it's okay to go close to failure in isolations and small muscles. But on the other hand, uh, not straw manning, as the opposite of steel manning, I guess, but uh, devil's advocate is if all the research that we have so far, uh, at least most of it, all of the research we have so far, and most of the insight from people at the gym train, is that we don't actually need to go really close to failure all the time, especially at the beginning of mesos. Like, if you say to me, look, one rep in reserve is categorically better than two reps in reserve as a, ma- a method of average training, you're making a statement that you probably can't support either experientially or certainly not empirically. So then, so why are we doing it? You know what I mean? Um, it's like getting a supersized burrito when you're not that hungry. Like, but it's only 25 more cents. I'm like, I got you, totally, it's cheap. Do you need a bigger burrito? Like, oh, there's no way I'm going to finish it. So why are you getting it? Right? Like, well, but it's 25 cents, right? So like, just because you can get away with something doesn't mean it's a good idea to do. It's like a road with, uh, you know, you go out of the Autobahn in Germany. There's no speed limit for various parts. So how fast do you go? Well, if it's to the point where your steering wheel's doing this and you're like, I'm going to die, what are you doing? Yeah, you're allowed to go faster, but it's a really good idea. So you will pay other costs. Uh, and so, so people, uh, a lot of times, and this is just, again, this is a real sort of devil's advocate position. People say, okay, the systemic fatigue spillover 
by going close to failure with isolations of small muscle groups is not as high. Thus, I'm going to do it. And it's like, okay, uh, I I believe the correct answer is thus you can do it. But the real question is, first, should you do it? And second, is it the best choice, all things being equal? I swear to God, and this is something in 10 years, 15 years, you and I are still going to be doing interviews, talk about the same fucking thing. A lot of bodybuilders, not all, are moths to the light with failure. Moths to the fucking light. Just want to go to failure. And like uh, like Broderick has a much better approach to this psychologically where he's like, fuck it, go to failure. And he tells guys that consult, like, is it a good idea? He's like, no, but but do it, do it. You know, you live once, you got to feed the soul. <laughs> I don't have that position. Uh, don't, you know, Steve, people aren't tuning in to us about the soul. That's what like meditation podcasts are for. They're tuning in for optimum results, at least a semblance of them. And then if they want to deviate from that optimum path by going to failure too much, sweet. But that, that it's a known trade-off. So when people say, should I be going close to failure or isolations? My first question is why? And usually that leaves like cricket sounds. They're like, well, you can. I'm like, oh, sweet. Like you can also like cut off the tip of your pinky and probably suffer almost no consequences from it. They're like, right. So should you do it? Like, no, because it's got no benefits and small costs. I see. <laughs> so let's go back to the failure with, with small exercises. Now, if somebody can show me convincingly, and I'm open to this idea, that on small muscle group exercises, going closer to failure is a good idea, is a better idea, uh, then I'm, I'm absolutely open to the possibility. And, and, and remember that uh, there is some very limited research that you get better motor, high-end motor unit recruitment even further from failure on compound exercises than you do on isolations, that research is not what I would call conclusive, first of all. And second of all, what it shows is that anything between three and zero RIR is pretty much maximum for isolations. And like something like five to zero RIR is maximum for compounds. So it's not even saying like, you know, yeah, it's not even saying like you should go to one RIR. It's saying like still three to zero, it's still the same normal range. So that the research discovery there wasn't that isolations benefit more from closer proximity to failure. The research discovery was that compounds, you may take even further than failure than we thought and still get maximum motor unit improvement. So it, it, that's just the thing, man. It's just the thing. And, and when the, the Jared, if you have Jared on again, he can go on a big rant about this. Jared uh, has got a pet project of refuting failure people. And he's collected like a series of YouTube videos. He might've made a video about this on his Instagram. He did. There is series. one. Yeah, where he's like, he's like, all, quote, all the top guys go to failure. He's like, show me, show me where, show me where. There's all videos of top guys stopping like five RIR, maybe. And these are work sets. And like, that was a hard set. It was like, these guys go to failure. Flex Wheeler may have never gone to failure once in his entire life. Like Kevin Lebron, all these other guys, like all the best guys from the 90s, tons of the guys today. Jay Cutler literally sat on uh, Fuad Abiyad's channel. He's never gone to failure. He's like, they're like, how often do you train to failure? He's like, never. He's like, maybe look once or twice in my career, like for a set or two, but that was it. Like, so you just don't go to failure. He's like, no, like it's pointless. And like Jay Cutler tells you that, you know, and Fulon's a tough guy. Like he's a fucking like workhorse kind of guy. He didn't want to hear that, but he was, he's an honest dude. So he's like, oh, well, respect, you know, but like a lot of guys want to hear that. Like, yeah, fucking grind, mate. That's what it takes. Like fucking suffer. Like, no, it's just, you, if you don't go to failure, you just have to do more sets to get probably the same amount of stimulus. And that may be safer and it might take you as much time because your rest breaks can be shorter because you're like, once you go to failure, you need a big ass rest break for the next set. If you go to RIR, you might need a smaller rest break. So instead of doing three sets, you do four, but they're two RIR and the rest time is two minutes instead of three minutes. And all of a sudden it's literally the same amount of time and probably lower injuries, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, I used to train for years, multiple sets to failure, every set to failure. I did super hit like 
multiple sets to failure and it was fine. It worked fine. And then I stopped going to failure and it just worked better. My mesocycles could be longer. I got stronger within the mesocycle, stronger between the mesos. I got hurt less. My technique was better. Everything was better. Uh, I'm inclined to believe that that's probably the right answer. I think every now and again, going to failure has some good merit, but consistently going close to failure, again, moths to light, moths to light. Oh, I can go to failure here. Why? Never really get a good answer. Yeah, I think it's, I'm glad you've covered that again, although it was a similar answer to if you've given before, but it, it's a nice reminder for people because I think we bring this up regularly and I end up talking to Pascal about it on the podcast regularly. And it is one of the, and Moths to Light is a great description of it because it is, it's just like one of those things. It's like, I don't know, a little bit of an addiction. They need a little bit of a taste of failure training. And I guess it's fun. If, if you're going to do it on something, isolation lifts probably are the, the ones to do it on, not the compound lifts at the start That's of the That's a very good way to put it. Mm-hmm. Uh, very but good way. like you said there, I think most people listening to this podcast are after optimal. I think probably even the people who, a moths to light are after optimal and somehow tend to convince themselves otherwise of that. And I think that is kind of cherry picking maybe anecdote more than actual studies, because like you've said, the studies are pretty convincing now. Uh, so maybe there'd be new science to say otherwise, but at the moment, like you said, it's becoming pretty compelling that we can, we don't need to, and actually we can get better results staying further away. Not to say that failure doesn't have merit, like you already mentioned. Maybe for advanced folks, it has more merit, but again, that's a big need. Yeah. And I mean, seeing you, Jared, Charlie, pretty damn advanced, growing very well. Almost every other bodybuilder, by the way. <laughs> yeah. Like you could be sure that the guys that don't yell about failure all the time probably aren't going to failure. <laughs> like they're just not. And they're leaving a couple reps in the tank and they're fucking enormous. Cool. We get to the next question. Actually, might be similar. I'm not sure. Yeah, it was from Mohammed uh, Magab, and he has asked: Is there any scientific evidence to support benefits from going all out in some sets, maintaining proper technique but with shorter range of motion? I've noticed that since I've started incorporating some of these sets in my training, I've seen better strength progress. Um. I think for people that have been underdoing the difficulty of their training or underdoing the volume, training harder is better. So for example, what Muhammad could have done is multiplied the total number of sets he does per week in that muscle group by like 1.3 and he could have gotten better progress. When you're doing X number of sets lower than your MRV and lower than your meso average MAV, you're like, you're just under training. Any increase in difficulty is going to result in betterment, not necessarily because of that increase in difficulty. For example, if you have someone who's under eating like crazy and you give them an extra 50 grams of fat per day, their energy and training is going to go fucking crazy. Like, and they're going to be like, oh my God, fats, like what is the pathway by which fats give me energy? They just displace everything else you're burning, leave you with more glycogen, which your body's kind of currently burning to fucking survive. So the fats don't actually go to the energy directly. It's a displacement process. So when you're underdoing it, more than anything works. Uh, when you're going really close to failure at the correct volumes, the fatigue is excessive and strength progress declines. When you're doing partial range of motions, this has been tested many times, strength is enhanced much more when you're doing more full range of motions, the direct study. So there's any direct studies to support this? Absolutely not. But we can do you one better and not say you're experiencing something weird, maybe experience something totally normal. Or if you were going X amount of hard per week on average, and your abilities were X plus something, 
And now you've closed that gap in some way. Did you close it in the best way possible? Probably not. Just do more full range of motion sets. Probably get you well on your way, even better. Um, but is it good that you're doing more of something? Yes. So that, that would be my first guess as to what's going on. And of course, these are very mysterious things. Tons of things could be going on. Um, he could be doing less volume now. It turns out he was doing too much. And now that he's incorporated this tactic, but it makes him tired, he backed off with it. It approved. Uh, eventually on YouTube, eventually, uh, years from now, because we've got all the scoped out, we'll have a video series on how to conclude and how not to conclude what's going on based on your own experience. It's very, very complicated, philosophically, very, very deep stuff. It's wildly complex. Um, a lot of times the, the key is to understand that whatever manipulation you made may not be the direct thing that's causing changes. Uh, and everything else has to be stagnant as well. And the right conditions have to be there. So, for example, it's a really good one. People will say, you know, I, um, I increased my volume, but I got worse results. So MRV is bullshit. Yeah, I got you. Did you increase how much food you were eating? No. What the fuck are you doing? How do you expect to get good results if you're increasing the amount of throughput and muscle damage and stimulus magnitude, but you're not supplying those pathways with the nutrients they need? It's like saying I got a really uh, cool engine upgrade in my car, but I'm not, I'm still putting the regular fuel into it. Like it doesn't go any faster. Like what's that supposed to? It needs special fuel. So a lot of times people will make one change and think, well, okay, this is what caused it. Whereas in reality, it's 50 different other things, or they'll change their frequency or something. Uh, they'll say, you know, I, man, when I squatted a lot, my legs grew the best. But they don't realize that when they squatted a lot, they were doing like a Russian program, which was squatting four times a week. Now that they're not squatting a lot, they're doing leg presses, leg extensions. They're only training legs once a week. They sort of forgot that it was actually a four versus one time a week comparison, which is way more important than any exercise you can choose. So you got to be really, really careful about these things on paper, on the pure theory, and on the experimental evidence directly. Muhammad's case is one in which I would expect his results to be worse, uh, not better. But there's 50 different ways in which they could be better indirectly. So in one of them I described is just he's doing more, which is good because that's probably what he needed to do. There may be better ways to do more. It's like a, a, another weird one is like a, you are on a hypercaloric diet. You're not, uh, you're not gaining because you're isocaloric, right? You add strawberries. Okay, and it puts you into that hyper just barely. A lot of strawberries. And 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 you're like, dude, the reason I started gaining is fucking strawberries. And it's like, <laughs> yeah, actually, that's the least efficient way you could have added calories. If you just added two protein bars a day, you would have gained just as fast, except with 50 times less GI distress and chewing. And they're like, oh, Fox, it was the extra calories. Like, yes, it was the extra calories. Hi, guys. Yeah, Steve here. Just wanted to take a moment of your time to remind you of our online coaching service. At Revive Stronger, we pride ourselves on providing personalized service that will take your physique and knowledge to the next level. If you're interested, check the description and sign up. Yeah, I think that's very well said because it, it, I mean, yeah, it's counter to what you'd expect better results from doing something that you wouldn't expect to lead to better results. It's kind of if someone's in a fat loss phase, just a, something that always comes to my mind, like, and they're very stressed out. And so they end up like, I don't know, drinking and having like a tasty meal out. They super relax the next day. I don't know, they're a bit dehydrated, lose some body water and they're lighter. And they're like, ah, oh, like, I don't know, alcohol and like fast food is the, the way to go. And it's like, <laughs> no. That's just body water bullshit. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. So we get to the next question which is from Andrew Potacek. And he has asked, 
Uh, not that I agree with bro splits or one per week body part sessions, uh, but could it sometimes be beneficial as enhance getting so strong it's more it's needed just to give the joints that time between sessions? Or I guess you'll say do less each session, haha, but this still six days off for joints would be beneficial, would it not? Just a thought. Yeah, totally. No, it's completely correct. Even for the muscles when you get big enough. I mean, uh, I always bring this up. It's just a good example. There's videos of Marcus Rule back in the day, Smith machine pressing five plates, full range of motion in the incline uh, for a set of like six. And he did multiple sets of chest in that workout with machines and then incline press and everything. How long do you think it takes muscles to recover from that? You know, guys will say like, yeah, you got to be training four times a week, chest. Oh, yeah, yeah. Walk in Monday, do that, and then walk in Wednesday and, and have packs that are still attached to the tendon. Fuck out of my face, right? So it, it's muscle, it's nervous system, it's cytokine release, systemic fatigue, and it's joints. And joints oftentimes for the long term are the limiting factor. So it's absolutely true that folks that are uh, – bigger and stronger, forget enhanced or not enhanced, uh, may benefit from more sustainable frequencies that are lower. That being said, there may be a better way to do it. Um, so a lot of people, and again, this is one of those examples from, from sort of Muhammad's case of nonlinear thinking here. People usually treat training as this uh, kind of atomized unit of when I train, I do the following. I train heavy, I train hard, I do this, I do that. For people, they usually think training is one thing and it meets certain requirements. Like a meal has protein and has veggies, it has some carbs, it has some fats. There are different kinds of meals though that don't have to meet all those criteria. It's just the same way training can be different than what most people think. So if training to you means you go hard and heavy and you do the compounds, then yes, you may only be able to train once a week if you get sufficiently big and strong. But you may be able to train twice a week if you hypothesize training could be that hard and heavy and you do that the first session, Monday, and then Thursday you come in and you do only machine work, isolation work, and you go sets of 20 to 30. Still a fucking great workout, especially for guys that are enhanced and big. That, those kinds of rep ranges fuck you up, but they don't fuck the joints hardly at all. So now you're training twice a week, you're getting amazing gains, no problem for the joints. So um, the solution to the problem of joints and fatigue in general, precluding you from training at X frequency, can be to reduce the frequency greatly and conserve the kind of training you're doing. But another potential solution, which is probably better, is to think more open-mindedly about, okay, I, the joints are the problem here. How do I train but not hurt my joints much? And the answer can be, first of all, splitting up the volume a little bit. So instead of doing 10 sets of legs, you do six sets on Monday. And instead of trying to do 10 sets of legs again on Thursday, you do eight sets on Thursday. But those Thursday eight sets are very light, more isolation. And all of a sudden, you get two great stimuli per week instead of one maybe overdone stimulus that you have to sort of overreach and recover from for next week. So I think there are better ways around it. The problem is most lifters, again, moths to light, a lot of lifters, not only do they go to failure religiously, they go heavy religiously. They'll say, like, if I'm coming to the gym, it's either heavy or I don't show up. Word up. That's fucking stupid. That's the only way I can say that. You can get great training light. It's just not going to be the kind of training that builds a ton of muscle sustainably over time. That's not what you're using it for. Uh, you know, it's like saying when I eat, it's only steak. Like, well, what about mashed potatoes? Like, well, you're talking about a meal of mashed potatoes? No, it's on the side. So every week is a meal. Monday's steak. Thursday's mashed potatoes. It's fine. It's better that way. 
instead of like, well, I can't have two steaks, so I only eat Monday. Like, yeah, that's true. There's other things you can put on the plate, you know. Um, so, so I think it's it's uh, maybe good to think about it like that. So, yeah, to the, the, the question asker, there's absolutely validity there, but there are better ways around it probably than simply training with the super low frequency. And when we're talking about light, what I guess there's various ways you could make a session kind of lighter exercise selection, I guess, I don't know if pre-fatiguing or also exercise kind of rep range, what, what would be, I guess I could use rep range first. Yeah. Rep yeah. range first. So it depends on how light you need it to be to not bother the joints. So that's ecologically going right. to change lifter to lifter. Some lifters can in fact go heavy multiple times a week. Some lifters, their lighter needs to be like heavy as sets of five to 10 and lighter as sets of 10 to 20 for some lifters. Uh, it's sets of 20 to 30. And those are all effective rep ranges. Um, the thing is, is like if your joints are beat up, sets of 20 to 30 and more isolation style movements, especially movements that are different than the movements you used. Like if you did squats and leg presses for sets of five to 10, 10 to 12 on Monday, doing like walking lunges and leg extensions for quads for sets of 25 on average, uh, it probably just not going to really hurt your knees because it's such a different application of force. The force factors are different. The movement is different. And the absolute loading is tiny. Um, matter of fact, you could try this. You can do multiple sets with short rest, uh, very close to failure of leg extensions, light, uh, with myo rep leg extensions. And then as soon as you're done on that, you get up and you just do walking lunges, staying really close to failure and doing myo reps for them for the next you know, 60 steps or something. And that's a massive hit, huge quad disruption. But really, like the leg extensions, first of all, just aren't that damp, you know, are not transducing forces through the knee in the same pathway at all. And it's like it's like 100 or 150 pounds, it's nothing. Your knees are going to be fine. They're going to be really warmed up. And then when you're doing lunges, your knees are super warmed up. And plus, it's just your fucking body weight. Like, I'll tell you this, if your knees are so fucked up that your body weight hurts you to lunge three days later after leg training, maybe doing something wrong in leg training. And then I'll go back on the phone. A lot of people don't know how to train. Their technique sucks so much that they're grinding away at their joints all the time. They just assume it's part for the course. I don't have hip problems. I don't have knee problems. I don't have shoulder problems, as evidenced by the super arm laterals. I don't have elbow problems. I just don't have joint problems. Every now and again, I do, mostly from jujitsu. That's a pretty good excuse. Um, but you know, I can do sets and sets and sets of super high bar uh, squats of hundreds of pounds and be fine because I know how to fucking lift properly. Uh, and a lot of people don't know how to lift weights. It's super fucked up. Uh, a lot of people who are really jacked don't really know how to lift weights. Um, you know, you'll, they'll like, you'll see people deadlifting and bent rowing and you're just like, what the fuck are you doing? Like you would get laughed out of a powerlifting meet doing that deadlift. People are like, Oh, it's your first day or something. Like, no, I've been training for 10 years. Like you're a fucking idiot. Like uh cat backing deadlifts. You see bodybuilders do shit like that all the time. Like, yeah, man, I can't deadlift too much because of my back. Like, no, you're fucking retarded. Like, that's it. So a lot of times what people say is I can't train heavy too often. Actually, you can if you knew how to lift weights. You know, you've got Russian power lifters one and a half times stronger than any bodybuilder walking around who do heavy squatting three times a week. They know how to do technique. Um, Shaco, a bunch of Shaco seminars that I've been to and, and stuff and have seen, they'll work with lifters that thought they were advanced and they'll break down their entire squat technique and, and, and you know, because the Russians have no problem with being rude. They're like, you don't know how to squat. And the guy's like, but I'm a 600 pound squatter. They're like, yeah, because yeah, you're strong, you have big muscles, but you don't know how to squat. Let's teach you how to squat. And they, you look at the difference between Eastern European lifters and a lot of times Western lifters is from day one, their technique is fucking amazing because they get developed in junior programs and every single lift looks the same. That's what a bunch of people say about Russian lifters is like, like, you know, this guy's lift is, you know, I seen in a warm-up room, 135, looks, uh, you know, like 60 kilos, looks like 400 kilos. It's crazy. Like, that's what it's supposed to look like. 
but a lot of people don't invest in good technique and they just get in there and pound the iron and go super close to failure, go super heavy and all that compounds to them saying, well, I can only train X, Y, Z. Like, yeah, if you train like that, yeah, surprised you could train once a week. But if you train more properly with a full range of motion, pauses, positioning your body properly in a way that doesn't hurt your joints, then you would be in a position where you, it turns out you can train much more. More of the stimulus goes to the muscle, less to the joint. This is, uh, it, I see it all the time with the kind of chasing loads and training to failure, be thinking kind of like the only way to build muscle is to get stronger and kind of that sort of progressive overload in the short term. And that's kind of their focus. And that leads to breakdown of technique and yeah. kind of they shift the, the tension away from the muscles and things like this. And I know I recently heard you speaking on, uh, I think it was on uh, RP plus, uh, sorry, not RP plus. It was over, it was a webinar with James and you were speaking mm -hmm. about someone kind of asked, like, it looks like you're squatting. I think it was like less weight than you are now. Yeah, and yeah. you kind of explained the kind of internal focus and getting basically a better stimulus to fatigue ratio and sure. kind of people focus so much on the getting stronger. And I think actually potentially worse than that stimulus to fatigue ratio. And they feel like potentially, Oh, I, I can't get any stronger or I, and therefore yeah. now I can't grow. Whereas yeah. like you've taken it a, a very different path of, as you get more advanced, you can get better at that internal stimulus and keep growing with not having to necessarily use heavier weights all the time yep. like eventually you will need to yep. but you're getting better yeah, totally. at the technique and everything yep quality first muscle stimulus first and the loads come as a result of that and they're progressed into very easily if it's all down to lifting as much weight as you can especially if you're willing to shorten the range of motion um, you're on a, a weird path there's I, again i'm gonna leave this nameless i don't like to talk shit um but there's a bodybuilder who was just posted a little while back on social media and he was like there's a video of him rowing, rowing, and it was like this god awful thing that's like the seizure. And he's like, Man, I can't wait to like start to really push the pace. Like, with you know, it's clearly like he's going to be taking a shitload of gear uh, really soon. He's like, I got that coming up in, in like a month, and I can't wait to push the pace and see some gnarly PRs. That's what the P PRs. How do you count? How do you count a, a PR when your torso is swinging like 45 degrees? What the, what the fuck are you doing? It's, it's almost embarrassing. I, 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 I looked at that, like, like if I was like on a level with that guy where I could speak to him like man to man he'd be like what do you think i'd be like i think you're a fucking clown dude are you fucking kidding me and i would never say that because it's not a good way to convince someone but if it's just like if someone asked me like what do you think of this guy i'd be like what the fuck dude like what are you talking about prs like there's no standard here and also what is that lift even for it's like some kind of deadlift bent row combination like you can't wait to lift heavier why your back's not going to feel it anymore you're just going to get hurt like it's so fucking ridiculous and there's that whole tough guy thing and you know we're all you know the male side of the sport it's funny too because if you notice the female side females are just better at technique and they're yeah. not as ego driven because females are not as ego driven um and uh, men will be like yeah man i'm fucking tough more pig iron more weight and blah blah like yeah well, pat yourself on the back you're a tough guy people are afraid of you you're, you're the kind of guy that walks into a room and people clutch their purse congratulations like is that gonna be solace for you when you're in the hospital bed and they're like well you tore part of your glute off because you're an idiot and your bodybuilding career is over for the next six months. That's not going to help you much. And when you're, you got to take more gear and load more weight on the bar and your waist starts to grow and your back isn't growing as much as you thought it would. And you're like, fuck man, it's just not cut out for this. That's not going to be solace either. So train properly because you want the best results. And sometimes that means your ego won't look like you're training very hard, but good news, you'll be really, really jacked and really safe. And that's amazing because you just get more training and get even more jacked and be even more safe. If you really want to talk shit, talk shit to Dexter Jackson. 
And motherfuckers like retiring this year at age like 75 or some shit looking amazing because Dexter Jackson was never an ego lifter. Uh, and, and like, you could say like, well, you know, this and that excuse, but there's, there's a role model to look up to. Very well said. Awesome. Uh, we get to the next question and uh, Evan Godby has asked, I've noticed many times enhanced pro bodybuilders do shorter contest preps than natural pro bodybuilders, such as 12 weeks versus 20 to 30. Are there specific reasons that this is the case or just coincidence? I can't tell if the natural bodybuilding prep that we think is long is just an artifact of the fact that 3DMJ has influenced and coached tons of naturals and they're really big fans of long contest preps, or if natural bodybuilders on average actually prep longer for shows. Um, I can't tell which one it is. Not sure. It could very well be that natural bodybuilders actually do prep for longer. Um, I'll tell you this, Jared's guys prep for... 20 weeks is like the most, I mean, 16, 12 to 16 weeks for Jared's guys, which is as long as the drug guys. Um, and I just don't know if it's true that outside of that circle of huge and, and well-deserved influence of 3DMJ that people are doing 40 week contest preps. Um, so I don't know if that's true. Um, I will say that if you are enhanced, you can do a shorter prep and just not risk muscle loss. I will also say that it is incredibly difficult because the amount of drug throughput and caloric throughput that is required tears you a new asshole psychologically, physiologically, everything. Like a lot changing really fast in your body, uh, hunger signaling and everything going which way, one way or the other. It's tough. Um, and most bodybuilders who have competed in the enhanced level for a while will tell you like short preps are stupid. Don't do them. Uh, yes, I have gotten on stage after eight weeks of dieting. It was awful, terrible. I'm super happy to fuck on my peak, but my body water was doing all kinds of crazy shit. And I really, really liked just taking 12 weeks or 16 weeks or 20 weeks. And so, on. so, um, I think that the biggest obvious factor is that pros or sorry, enhanced folks can do shorter preps and get away with it. Uh, but they can also do longer preps and get away with it, because <laughs> uh, they don't accumulate diet fatigue the same way, potentially. Um, I will say another constraining factor is that prep a lot of times means you start taking really harsh compounds and orals and high doses, which you just can't do for very long because your body starts to die. So a lot of times the uh, cycle is shortened that way um, based on just necessity of you just can't keep cranking because as a natural, yeah, shit, you can prep for 40 weeks and your body's fundamentally the same. You have low testosterone, things like that for a long time. Uh, but uh, you know, for at the pro level or sorry, at the enhanced level, same, same. Uh, it's uh, one of those situations where, you know, like once you start to turn it up, so to speak, eh, that faucet doesn't stay turned on for long. Because if it does, your own body comes out of that faucet. So it's it's another thing where people, you know, there may be like a lead-in of a month where you start to take normal amounts of gear, and then another month where you start to introduce things like trend, and then you got two or three months where you start to do orals and fat burners and all sort of crazy shit, and you can only do that for two or three months. So that automatically limits your prep to maybe 60 weeks, right? So if you say, hey, is there a 24-week prep? Part of that isn't really prep. It's probably mass gating. We're just recomping at like pretty normal doses and long-term sustainable compounds. So, so that's probably another reason where it's not just that they can do shorter if they need to. They also can't do longer uh, if even that would be ideal for them. So maybe completely right that 3DMJs had it right along and 
30, 40 week contest prep is absolutely the best way to go. Uh, and, but pro, but the enhanced guys actually just can't do that because you just can't stay on a ton of gear that long. Uh, you know, you can, uh, not, not the best idea. Yeah. I think it's, it's very interesting that you say, I wonder if that is the case because certainly from social media, I would say it does look like, uh, a lot of natural guys are doing the longer preps, but it, I mean, it might just be that we're just seeing that. Uh, I think Andrew Chappelle might've done uh, a study, like a case study kind of a, uh, yeah, study on kind of pro bodybuilders. I can't remember if the, he looked at kind of length of contest prep. He definitely looked at like rate of loss um, in terms of like body fat, uh, weight of loss, rate of loss in terms of body weight loss per week, mm-hmm. uh, which is interesting. I wonder if um, from what I see, potentially in the natural scene, at least a lot of guys start kind of very like peak mass essentially is when they're, they call that then start a prep. So maybe they're 30 pounds over stage weight or 40 mm-hmm. even, which is why they need the, the length of time they need because they've got so much to take off. Whereas I don't know if I know for, for you and you introduced this to me as a case of like, if you're that far over, you want to diet some off, then come away from it and then go down again. Which a lot of the three MJ sort of influence would just actually call that one diet and they might not be yeah. wrong. Like with the number of diet breaks they take, you could actually make an argument that say they never died for longer than six weeks at a time. Their prep is only six weeks long. And then the pre-prep before that, before the diet break is another six weeks and so on and so forth. So with diet breaks, the whole equation changes. Pros usually don't take diet breaks because once you're on that amount of gear, you kind of like there's a finish line and you kind of just fucking going. Like very few pros pull back to maintenance or pull back to a surplus multiple times during the prep. Like as soon as prep starts, the deficit is imposed. Usually the deficit doesn't change much, if at all. And then you just take incrementally more gear and and the deficit is there and all of a sudden, voila, you're in shape. Um, so it's more linear process, which again, to Evan's very good question, the answer may be again, there's that linearity. For a lot of natural guys, they can't do that. They have to take maintenance breaks. They have to take diet breaks. And it's called 30 weeks is really not 30 weeks total. It's 20 weeks total with a bunch of diet breaks. And because of the diet breaks, it doesn't, it's not as imposing physiologically or psychologically as you would think. So my God, 30 weeks straight of a deficit. And I'd go, well, actually, no, not even close. Right? Yeah. Oh, I see. There's a bunch of breaks. So a little, little bit of a, of a potential difference in how that's and do you think, Mike, for the pros that are enhanced, do you think they'd be better taking some maintenance periods here and there? The diet breaks? If they need them, yes. Right. Uh, a lot of the guys who are enhanced start off at 10%-ish and uh, run from 10% to stage conditioning probably requires zero diet break. And taking a diet break when you're at 5% fat as Jared has many times said, it's probably a bad idea. It's just in a really shitty spot and you're just staying there longer. <laughs> so I think diet breaks are absolutely great at the higher body fat ranges. So for example, if you start at 15% and you want to get to stage conditioning, then taking a diet break around 10% is a really good idea. It lets that breath of fresh air. But I think pretty clear to us, likely, clear, likely to us that once you descend significantly below 10% body fat, it's kind of like getting really close to a fire and trying to pick something out of the fire with like one of those mittens, you know, like you don't take a break when you're close to the fire. You take a break before you enter the burning building. Uh, so like if you're a firefighter, you run up to a burning building, you take a break right before you enter. Once you enter the burning building, that's like so significantly sub 10% fat. Just get in and get that fucking thing out of the fire as quick as you can. Uh, there's no taking breaks during that within the building. That's not a good idea because you're so lean and so depleted and so on and so forth. 
Uh, enhanced guys can make it happen more likely because all their hormones are exogenous and they don't have low testosterone in that position, but they have 50 other influences of diet fatigue uh, that it's, uh, the question becomes, what is the purpose of a diet break? Psychologically, it can help. But then again, like, look, if you start at 10%, you're going on stage at somewhere between realistically like 3 to 4%, I mean, really, the, the, you know, how long is that going to take? It's not going to take probably more than 12 weeks. And if it is, why are you dieting that slow? You know what I mean? Um, so, you know, so let's seven, you take 7% body fat and let's say the person weighs a hundred kilos. So seven times roughly, uh, it's 2.2 pounds. Uh, so that's seven kilos, right? Seven kilos to get you seven kilos of fat to get you. If you weigh around a hundred kilos, seven kilos of fat to get from 10% to zero to 3%. That's roughly 15 pounds, okay? If you take 12 weeks to do that, that's just over a pound a week of fat loss. Steve, that's just not that much, man. And, and for guys who are 100 kilos, that's like 0.5% of their body mass per week. I mean, like, that's fucking conservative. And, and for contest prep, I don't think that's conservative. I think that's right on. You know what I mean? The guys will say, like, oh, no, you need more time. Like, do you really? Like, how slow are you losing? And then Why? Like at some point, losing slow, like the firefighter analogy, you don't run to the object you're trying to save from the fire because you might hit a fucking brick wall or hit some falling debris, but you also don't slowly walk to it because the fucking building's on fire. What are you doing? <laughs> like you, know, you judiciously at a good pace move towards the object. Same way as once you dip below 10% body fat, yeah, you don't lose like, you know, something like a pound a week is good. And if you're losing at a pound a week, at you start at 10% body fat, you, gee whiz, you know, because these guys, you, you don't lose muscle on an enhanced prep if you're doing things remotely properly, then really it's just a matter of just, you just don't need any longer than maybe about 12 weeks. And do you need a diet break for 12 consecutive weeks of dieting? Especially if you took one right before? No. And if these guys started 10%, that means they weren't a fucking huge diet break. They might've been in a mass gaining phase or a maintenance phase, and then they were 10%. And then, good God, of course you could do 12 weeks straight with no diet break. So so the necessity of that sort of thing kind of tends to disappear. And I think that logic is pretty similar for naturals too. Right. So do you need a diet break going from 15% to 3%? Fuck yeah. Do you need a diet break going from 9% to 3%? I don't think so. Uh, probably not. Um, have you got time for if I dig into this a little bit? Yeah. Or are you, okay. You bet, I, it, you it might not take long. Um, I'm just getting a definition for a diet break just so that people know. Because I think maybe some people turn them differently. I'm not sure. But I just want to get yours. A return to maintenance for at least one week possible. Okay. And just so then my only question would be obviously if you're, I don't know, dieting that period of time, maybe it's fifteen weeks or something, ten weeks. If you had a deload, would you take that up to maintenance? Would that be counted as a diet break or how would you approach that? Enhanced or natural? Uh go for both. For natural, you would. So you would have an automatic diet break, but right. because it's a deload, intellectually it's still a diet break, technically. But it's not like a pre-planned, like, I'm really going to back off here. It's right. just a deload and you eat at maintenance. You're not, I'll put you this way, a real diet break refills glycogen stores and stuff like that. When you eat at maintenance on a deload, you don't really refill glycogen stores. You just stop digging into them. So the fatigue is dropped, but there's no refilling process. Uh, and psychologically, it's not a ton more food or anything. So it's kind of still, it's still a diet. Um, for enhanced, you can deload through a deficit just fine. 
if you're taking enough gear. Is that the best idea? Probably not. Would I like to see people ideally bump their food a little bit during maintenance? Yeah, sure. But they can get away without doing that. Uh, oh, one of the reasons that deloading is not even a thing, like the practice of deloading weights is not a thing in the enhanced community, is because a lot of guys train in bouts of escalating gear. So what they'll do is they sort of don't train or train really easy and whatever. Then they start taking a lot of gear in a mass phase for let's say last 16 weeks. And it's more and more gear the entire time. And <clears throat> that allows you to have better, better fatigue tolerance the entire time. And it directly counteracts parts of cumulative fatigue. So you don't actually ever need to deload. Like every now and then they get a few higher, they take an extra day off, they go light here and there, and that accomplishes everything they, they need to. Not a wise strategy, but it works, at least in the short term. It will get you injured sooner or later. And, and these guys do get injured sooner or later. And then in their cutting phase, they do the same thing, where they take more and more gear, and so they don't ever have to deload. When you tell enhanced guys that are really jacked, like, hey, do you deload? They're like, what's like, what's that? They don't even know what the term means. Like, well, like, intentionally, because you don't get tired. They're like, I don't get tired. Right. Like, people ask me, and, you know, a lot of people, it's a perfectly fine question. Where, like, they'll notice I'm cutting, and they'll ask me on Instagram. And they're like, so, like, how much strength are you losing? I'm the strongest I've ever been. No, but you've been tidying for, like, 12 weeks. And, yes. Yes, the rules are a little different. So uh, that way, a lot of times people don't even deload. Uh, should they be? Yes. Should they be taking little mini dive breaks with their deload? Yes. But it doesn't have to be super extensive, uh, as it might have to be more extensive than drug-free folks. Um, but at the, at the end of the day, I think once for both, once you descend below 10%, you had better have all your ducks in a row where you're not taking prolonged dive breaks down there. Because first, you don't have to, because uh, you're that close. Um, it, it's like a, It's like... You just stop for gas two hours before reaching your final road trip destination, and then you're an hour away, and someone in the road trip in the car is like, do you guys want to stop at this new gas station? It looks kind of cool. It's like, what the fuck are you talking about? We're like, we're going to be at the beach in an hour. Like, this is where we've been driving to for a fucking day. What are you talking about? Why are we stopping, right? You could stop, but like, why? And also, you're killing beach time now, right? Like, you could be on the beach, but you're at this quirky gas station with, like, dinosaur exhibit, and you're like, what the fuck are we doing here, right? So, same idea, like, once you start it, we can say. 10, 9%, it's just time to get it done. And then, and then uh, a lot of times guys will do another pretty wise thing where instead of taking diet breaks in the middle of that, they'll go from 9% to 3-ish percent, get in contact shape, and then take a couple of weeks to eat a little bit more, really drop the diet fatigue that does great things for your body water, great things for yeah. um, how you feel, and all of a sudden you look better. It works great for drug guys, works great for natural guys. So I would much rather see a little bit more on the back end there than on the, in the middle because you just don't need the middle. But that being said, if you're starting at 15% or 12% or 13%, yeah, you're going to need a diet break, uh, maybe at anywhere between 8 and 10% where it's still sustainable to be able to have one because you need that extra breath. It's, you know, like diving for jewels in a cave or something. You come up for air, you see a big jewel really far down there. Yeah, you could get it, but you've been underwater for, you know, 30 seconds. Come up for air and then go get it, right? Whereas if you just dive down, you see the jewel, just fucking go get it. There's no need to come back up. Cool. Yeah, I think um, some of the, is it's, complete true i know when i was uh, consulting with jared as i was going down and using some of the kind of you call them diet breaks bars deloading under 10 percent, and it's a case of they're almost used as like practice peaks or like you're not truly taking a break you're not switching off by any means you're not increasing no. food by loads you're just getting an idea of how you're responding to a little bit more food whilst deloading it gives you kind of an idea of how many carbs maybe you need yep. and that sort of thing yep. so and you can play with your body water and your salt yeah. and stuff like that to try to see mm -hmm. cool awesome Mike, that is everything I've got for. I've, uh, thank you for giving me an hour of your time. We're a little bit over. Um, I know everyone would appreciate it a lot. 
Um, I'm excited to do another one of these in future. And I think last time we kind of, I don't know if you got any more updates on the hypertrophy book, but I know last time we kind of like teased people with it. I don't know if you've got any cemented dates. I know it's only been two weeks, so I doubt it. No cemented <laughs> dates, but December is happening with a 99% likelihood. So awesome. it's, it's going to be happening. Yeah. Uh, Steve, by the way, the mustache works. I can't <laughs> believe I'm saying that. Very few people can pull it off. You can pull it off. I am so I have a terrible I have a story about uh what's it called Movember and I did it at work I won't talk about it here but my mustache is uh I'm glad it's at least grown to this level because it won't get much more <laughs> I appreciate uh, it <laughs> well this is more than sufficient <laughs> cheers Mike and uh thank you everyone for listening we'll catch you soon So I'm Steve Hall, founder of Revive Stronger and a coach of Revive Stronger. My name is Pascal Floor. I'm the co-owner of Revive Stronger and also a coach, of course. Revive Stronger has probably been going solidly for three years, probably roughly about three years. Revive Stronger, to me, it is becoming kind of my child, my foster child. It's the gathering and getting together of like-minded people. We've been expanding the coaching team, which is helping us help more people. Uh, but each coach can only help a certain number of people. Right now, it's all over the place. We have YouTube, we have Facebook, we have Instagram, but there isn't that community aspect behind that. And so the next step for us is developing a membership site. So basically, we want to create a family and a community that is then benefiting from another. A really cool community for people within our little niche is going to be a website. They will get early access to our podcast. You can access us, ask us questions, the community aspect. We have a forum there. You can ask questions, but also you can, you can lock your journey. There's also going to be courses on there, courses, presentations on different topics, discount of past seminar footage. We will log our journey as well. We'll start vlogging. We're gonna have documentaries, our entire athletic journey. Furthermore, they get access to an exercise video library. The exercises that we love for hypertrophy and maximizing hypertrophy, we're gonna go through those in depth, telling you how to execute them. We kept them concise and also mobile friendly so that you can watch them in between your sets. I'm super excited to grow this community. The amount of value that we're gonna be delivering is huge. And I'd love you to be part of it. You will get so much out of that. I'll see you inside.